First Peter chapter 3, please. So today I want to talk about living prepared. And what Peter's going to do is he is addressing these exiled believers who are grappling with how, how do I, what are some things I can grab onto in the midst of such an uncertain world in regard to my faith. And so he's going to give us some things um, to help us to live prepared, to understand those things, and, uh, and to give us a really great foundation. As Christianity spread in the first century, it entered into a world that was not irreligious, but it was a very religious world. There were Greek and Roman gods everywhere. Um, emperor worship became the law of the land where you had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. And so, so as Christianity expanded in the first century, early on, Rome did not do much to the Christian faith. It was seen as part of a sect of Judaism. Rome felt it had a pretty good handle on Judaism and its control in Israel and what was going on. But over time, Rome began to have an issue, and you can see this in the book of Acts. As we're walking through the book of Acts the rest of this year, we will begin to see that in the days ahead, is that there will be an increasing persecution. You, we will see this particularly in the life of Paul. Paul, not only just from the Jewish religious leaders, but Rome will have a heavy hand in the things that Paul is going to experience. And the reason later on Rome begins to push their persecution on Christianity, and it is seen different from a Jewish religious sect, is the exclusiveness that we have in regard to Christianity. We claim there is only one God. Rome claimed there are many gods. Caesar was one of those gods, and everybody who was a citizen in this empire was to acknowledge once a year Caesar was Lord, believers would not do so and they would not bow to that. And so there began to be an intensity in regard to Christianity, um, in regard to Rome's focus on that. And so um, there was an increasing of that in regard to um, those believers. And, and Peter knows this full well. I want you to look with me. We're going to read this this week, but let's go ahead and get a head start. Go to Acts chapter 5 just for a moment. And let's see from the life of Peter himself. He he understood this aspect of persecution and the increasing of it. And I want to read one in Acts chapter 5, and we will be, that, um, be there this week in the W4. Uh, this week in Acts chapter 5, beginning tomorrow morning. I want to show you a few things here, and then we're going to look at something in Acts 12. So Peter understood this. He understood persecution and its reality. Acts chapter 5, verse 17, this is what it says. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They had been arrested for this proclamation. Angel says, hey, I'm setting you free. Go and do this. And so they go and they do this. Verse 27 of Acts 5. And when they had brought them and they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given those who obey him. Now go down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in spite of what had happened, this is what they did in the temple and from house to house. They did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. So in spite of don't do this, 
Peter and the apostles said, we cannot help but do this. And there are some things that they cling to that were foundational in the midst of all of this that did not stop them, but they continued the proclamation. Peter will share some of those things. Go to Acts chapter 12 just for a moment. Let's read 1 through 5. Here's another example from the life of Peter. Acts 12 verse 1. And about that time Herod... The king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer was made by God, was made to God by the church. One more. Go back to John chapter 21 for a moment. I want to, I want to show these things to us so we see that as Peter writes these, he's writing, when we get to 1 Peter 3, he's writing from a perspe- perspective of he knows what this is like. So one, Peter experienced persecution himself. So as he writes this, he understands it. He also understood that his life would end in persecution. So there's a perspective that he has in 1 Peter 3 that is unique. John 21, verse 20. Jesus is on the shore. Um, They've had some fish. He's had a conversation with Peter, and here it is. Peter turned and saw the disciple in verse 20, whom Jesus loved, John following them, and, and the one who also had leaned his back against him during the supper, And it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. But if it is my will, he remain until I come. And Jesus also tells Peter, he tells Peter, listen, there's going to be a time in your life that you are going to be led to a place that you're not really going to want to go. And it gave him a a picture of this is what's going to happen to you. So as we go to 1 Peter 3 today, we are reading from a man who understands persecution. He understands the very words that we're going to read today. This is how Peter was moving forward in the midst of the persecution and the, and the difficulty. So let's look, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer For doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So here's what Peter's going to do today. Again, this is one who has experienced persecution himself. He is writing to people who have experienced persecution. And he's telling them in the midst of this, these are some things you ought to practice in your life. You ought to hang on to in your life. This is going to help you get through in the midst of the difficulty. And the first one we see this morning, this morning is in verse 13. And I want to talk about the protection and a passion for goodness. There is a protection and a passion for goodness. So he asks the question as it begins in this. And this is kind of a transitional piece in regard to this letter that he is writing to them. Everything up to here, he has been writing and communicating to them. I want to remind you, you've been given a hope that is beyond everything. It changes everything. You've been given this inheritance. 
You are going to experience suffering. There's going to be difficulty. You've got to relate to government. Government's going to be difficult. You're going to have difficult work environment. This faith in Christ is going to affect your marriages. And he talked about that. And then he talked about the example that Christ is. And then now he's going to say, here are some things in the midst of all of that stuff that you have to deal with that are really, really critical. And he begins to ask a question. And he says this, Now, who ultimately is there to harm you, even in the midst of the persecution, if you are zealous or passionate for doing what is good? So he asks the question. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This call to goodness is not a new theme in 1 Peter. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2, he uses the word good a number of times connected in our faith to our faith, how we ought to live out our lives. It should be expressed in goodness in the world. Throughout the five chapters of 1 Peter, he uses the word good 17 times. There is a call from Peter reminding them in the midst of the persecution that they are to be lights in the world and their life expression is to do good for the gospel. And so 17 times he calls it, and four times today in the text he will use the word good. Just by way of reminder, go back to chapter 2 just for a moment. This is what he's written so far, 1 Peter two twelve, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now in 1 Peter 3.10, we we looked at this last week. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and not just turn away, we talked about, but do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. This word here in the text in verse 13, the word if, expresses a remote possibility. Now let me talk about this just for a moment. For the most part... If a believer will do good in the world, do good deeds, not to earn salvation, but as an expression of our faith, most of the time the world is not going to return evil for that goodness. They will see that as something good. Most of the persecution still today comes from our exclusivity and our proclamation that there is only one God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't follow him, then you will be judged of that. And that's where the underlying motivation of most of the persecution happens and takes place in the world. But for the most part, if we do good by good deeds, paying for a meal, putting somebody up in a hotel, whatever the case may be, the world is not going to see that as something, well, I'm going to be mean to them because they're being good. So he's sharing here, listen, believers, if you will do good in a world that is even hostile to the gospel... There's not really anything people can do about that. Now, there is a possibility people are just going to hate believers no matter what because they hate God. But he's saying this, that is a possibility. But for the most part, if you will do good, there's really ultimately nobody is going to harm you. There's not really anything to fear. So through this section today, he's reminding them that there is a call, even in the midst of persecution, to do good works for the gospel with a motivation that Christ would be glorified by the way that we live. And so to live a God-honoring life, the lost world is going to be okay with it when we do really good things to benefit others. And yet at the same time, we also know this, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted so there is a reality of of that even though we do good and we're honoring God and everything we do is right that persecution will come but there's probably for the most part if we will do good by 
caring for people and loving people and investing our life for the good of people, for the gospel, most of the time the lost world is not going to do anything about it. So there's a strong emphasis from Peter that you and I are to do good. Not just gospel sharing, we should always do that, but we should do things like that. I thought about that um, this week or the week before we left when I put all this together. Giving food away, paying for a meal, helping someone with a rent or a car, uh, driving them somewhere, letting someone stay with you, whatever the case may be, there's a number of different things that we could do. Suffering for good, though, is not something that's going to last forever. It may be be a brief moment. And in those moments when it doesn't last forever, those are moments where we continue to pray to God and seek God and, and use those moments when there's not any kind of suffering that happens there to continue to walk and to seek Him. So there's a security to our faith and our salvation that is very beautiful and very unique. And so Peter says, now who is there to harm you? If you'll um, go back to go back just for a moment to to First Peter one chapter one verse three, and so he writes. So so Peter in, in three thirteen says, "Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good?" And basically, what he's saying is, since God is going to take care of us, and He's given this incredible great hope and this inheritance, who can really hurt us if we faithfully walk with Him? And so he reminds us early on in the letter in First Peter one three when he says this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it is kept in heaven for you, who by faith are being guarded um, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So watch this. So if we do good and the world responds negatively to it, ultimately there's nothing that we lose because our salvation is grounded in not what the world thinks, but it's grounded in what has already been done because our salvation and our inheritance are totally secure because of who holds our salvation. We don't hold it. He holds it. The persecutors don't hold it. They can't take it away. He affirms, Peter does, what Paul writes to us, these words in Romans 8 that mean so much to us. Let me just read them. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, here's the proof of that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall it come from our persecutors or distress or persecution? What about famine? Does that separate us from God or nakedness or danger? What about if they take the sword and kill us for our faith? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul says this, no, it doesn't matter about famine. It doesn't matter about nakedness. It doesn't matter about lack of food. It doesn't matter about the sword. It doesn't matter about persecution. It doesn't matter about the distress. Because in all things, because we are secure in him, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not about what we've done is about what he's done and there's a security connected with that and then he says these words this is verse 38 of Romans 8 for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present not even the things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Peter asks a question. All of this stuff has been done for you. You are living a good life, and at times the world is going to respond negatively to it. So how do we, what do we hold on in the midst of that? Here's what we hold on to. There's a protection in our lives, over our lives, not based on our good works, but based on the good work of Christ who died for us, who raised again, who, in, who ascended and now intercedes for us, ever lives to intercede for us. 
And so we are secure. So the world can do whatever it wants to do. It can say whatever it wants to say. There is a security of our faith and our salvation that causes us to have a confidence to live free regardless of what the world has to say. So there is a protection that comes to those who live good for the gospel. And it comes particularly for those who are passionate for the gospel. So first point this morning is is this. There's a protection and a passion for goodness that comes in our lives. And so this, so look, look at verse 13 again. So he says this, he says, Now who is there to harm you? Ultimately, there's nobody there to harm you. If you are zealous for what is good. So ultimately the answer is, who can harm us? No one can. The word zealous in the Greek means an ardent lover to burn with zeal, to be passionate or to desire something earnestly. In the first century, there were Jewish zealots. We learn from Acts twenty-one twenty-eight that there were about 4,000 likely, we understand, probably 4,000, at least 4,000 zealots in Israel living there at the time who hated the Roman government, who were willing passionately to give up their lives and die for the cause of trying to overthrow Rome. They were called zealots. As a matter of fact, one of the twelve was called Simon the Zealot. He probably was brought out of that group, or maybe not the group in Acts 21, 28, but he was a zealot who was one who wanted to see Rome overthrown. So this idea here is this. In the midst of persecution, Peter is not saying, hey, go hide yourself. Kind of calm it down. You know, they don't like the gospel. He's saying this, no, here's what you do in the midst of persecution. You know this, I'm going to live for the gospel. I'm going to do good for the gospel. I'm going to love the world. I'm going to do the things that Jesus did because I'm protected, because I can, I can live free, because I ultimately, who is there to harm you if you are passionate, zealous for what is good that is connected to the gospel? So there's a protection there. We are to be Ultimately, this is true about every believer. We are either going to be passionate for him or we're going to be passive. That's the reality. We will be passive, not aggressive, not passionate, not moving, or we will be passionate for him. This kind of passion that Peter's talking about as well brings a refining purity to our lives. We are to be in love with what is good. We are to be consumed by what is good connected to the gospel. And ultimately, the world will have a hard time being mean to that if we will be the kind of people that even when they are mean, we just turn the cheek and we continue to do good works. I also want to say just a couple more things before we move on to point two this morning. We should live lives without any kind of scandal attached to our lives. We should live in such a way that demonstrates this holiness and this love that we have for Jesus moves us to do good and moves us to live in purity. So we want to live lives without any kind of scandal attached to our lives. But also listen to this. The enemy, Paul said it a while ago in Romans 8, can't take what we have or change who we are as his children for we belong to him. And I think that reality just moves us. And this is what Peter's trying to tell them. Listen, who is there to ultimately harm you? Don't worry about Nero. Don't worry about Nero's army. Don't worry about your persecutors. Because you are secure in him, if they take your life, guess what you get? You get to live in the presence of Jesus. If you get to live here, you get to live in the presence of Jesus and continue to do good for the gospel. Either way, it's gain. One is ultimately better, Paul said in Philippians. It's better to go and be with him. Amen to that. Live in his presence, yeah. But if we live here, even in the midst of the friction that happens and takes place, there is a goodness here. We are his and we belong to him. 
So even in the midst of a world responding wrongly to Christians doing good for the gospel, here's what Peter tells them. Listen, there's a protection for those who are passionate to do good for the gospel. Let's look at the second thing this morning. And then he gives them a promise. There's a promise that is given to the persecuted. Look at verse 14. But even, so now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So here Peter gives that even if this comes, you're doing good for the gospel, you're taking care of people, you're taking care of the sick, you're loving, and you're kind, and you're goodness, and you give your money to the right kind of things that promote welfare of, of drawing people in regard to the gospel so they can know that Jesus is why we do what we do. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, there's a blessing that is connected to that. And because of that, you don't fear them. Don't let your heart be troubled. So I want, I want to talk about three things just real briefly here. So he says this, suffer for the right reason, suffer with the right perspective, and suffer with the right response. And let's talk about those just for a moment. So here, here is suffer for the right reason. So he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So let me talk about this just for a moment. If we're going to have trouble in the world, it's much better to have trouble if it is connected to godliness and righteousness than it is to our stupidity and mistakes that we make. That's natural. Okay, you know, he, he, he told this, listen, <clears throat> he told this to them back in, in chapter 2. He said, listen, what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And Peter's telling the servants you get what you, you're getting punishment because of what you did. So here he's telling them, listen, if, if you're going to suffer, let it be for what is godly. If somebody's going to respond wrongly to us and ridicule us, let it be because we're living our lives in righteousness. And that's okay. There's a security that comes with that. Um, turn to chapter 4 just for a moment of, of, of 1 Peter. In verse 12 through 16, he gives an interesting perspective about suffering in regard to suffering for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter 4, 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Notice the purpose of the fiery trial. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Look at that. I can't wait to teach this text. Listen to that. Look at 14 again. If you are insulted for the name of Jesus, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory in that moment in that setting, in that time period, and of God rests upon you. More glory comes. Look at 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. That's that idea I talked about a while ago. Don't suffer because we made bad decisions. Suffer because of righteousness sake. Look at 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that moment in the name. 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So here's the promise to the persecuted. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the right reason. Suffer for righteousness sake. Secondly, suffer with the right perspective. What's the perspective? If I'm going to suffer for this, the right perspective is there's a blessing connected to it. So he talks about that blessing in chapter 4. He talks about the blessing connected to suffering in chapter 3. David talked about this last week. It, uh, I hadn't listened to David's sermon um, last week. He talked about the Beatitudes last week. This word blessed here um, can mean happy. Uh, <clears throat> it can also at times, and particularly in the context here, 
can mean this in some cases. It can mean prosperous or privileged. Now listen to that. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are prosperous and privileged to suffer that way. Prosperous and privileged to suffer. That's the idea here. So blessed doesn't mean just to feel delighted, but it also means this, highly privileged. It's a blessedness because of this, because we are are experiencing the same thing Jesus experienced. He only did good. How did his life end up? Hanging on a cross. So as we live as he lived... He set the example for us. And as we live as He lived, this reality for us comes to see that we are sharing in His sufferings and we are being just like Him. Listen to Matthew 5, and I'm assuming David probably talked about this last week. This is Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account listen to what jesus says the response would be rejoice and be glad for your reward is great there's a blessing connected to it for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you so there is a promise to the persecuted that they suffer for the right reason they suffer with the right perspective there is a blessing connected with this you know the apostle paul got this he really understood this reality um if you want to turn there with me let me just share this passage second corinthians chapter 12 just for a moment second corinthians 12 verse 7 paul knew he had much to learn about christ and needed much refining in his life so in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ, going back to what we talked about a while ago, may rest upon me, Peter writes in verse 4. For the sake of Christ then, Paul says, I am content. Listen to this. Well, this, this, uh, this describes our lives. For I am content with weaknesses. For our culture honors weakness. Right? <laughs> No, I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecutions. And I'm content with calamities. For when I am weak, I am what? I'm strong. Paul and Peter both say, listen, suffer with the right perspective. There's a blessing that is connected to living for righteousness. And lastly, not lastly of the sermon, but lastly on this point. By the way, let me point out. Suffer with the right response. Here's the right response. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That's your response. That's our response. This word, have no fear of them, means to not be affected by the fear that they are given to you, to keep you to increase your fear, to not live your faith. So they're directing fear towards you, trying to intimidate you. You don't have fear because they are trying to increase your fear. Don't let that fear increase. Don't let it. Why? If you go back to 1 Peter 3.12, we looked at um, two weeks ago. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ear is attentive or open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So for us, we suffer 
with the right response and just we just do this. We're not going to be fearful of them. We're not going to let our, this word troubled means agitated. Don't let your heart get agitated over what's happening. You just rest in Christ. Don't let it disturb you. Don't be agitated. Is that even possible? We read a text a while ago that says it's possible. Let me just read it again to remind us. And went by Acts 5.40. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 12, verse 6. I read 1 through 5 a while ago. 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to, the ch- made to God by the church. Acts 12, 6 says, Now when Herod was about to bring Peter out on the very night, listen to this, I love this about Peter, this description. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter's going to be brought, and he's going to potentially be killed, and he's just sleeping, chained with two guards beside him, What's he doing? He's just resting because he's not having any fear. He's not letting his heart be agitated. His trust was, I'm going to live for Jesus and I'm going to trust him, whatever the outcome may be. If I need to proclaim more, he will give me the words to say and he's just resting there. We know the story. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi. They're put into the jail. They're beaten. Their feet are in stocks at midnight. What do they do? They just sing. They sing and they worship. What are they doing? They're resting. They're not letting their hearts be troubled or their hearts be agitated. They are suffering with the right response. I'm not going to let fear rule me, even though the world responds this way. I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. I'm going to rest in Christ, and it's going to be okay. So here's the third thing he tells us, verse 15. So here's what you do. In your hearts, if this is going on, you place Christ solely on the throne of your heart. So he says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Every one of us has a master. We all have a master that we allow to sit on the throne of our heart. Here are some of those that may be possibilities. An addiction, media, self, fleshly desires. Our past, we allow it to sit and just dominate and rule us. Some people, it's anxiety and fear sits on the throne of the heart. Or Christ is going to sit on the throne of the heart. So Peter says, we've kind of put all of it together. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, listen, even if that is the case, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them. Nor let your heart be troubled. Don't let your, but here's what you do with your heart. But in your hearts, you honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. So we place Christ on the throne room of our heart in the midst of whatever people may do. And we make our hearts a worship room. That it becomes a sanctuary where Christ is worshipped. This word honor can also mean to set apart, to sanctify The ancient Greeks used this word here when they would build the temples and the temple would be used for the worship of one of their gods. They used this word as the act of setting the building apart for a religious purpose. And Peter uses the same word in regard to Christ. Put Christ on the throne room of your heart and make this throne room of your heart the sole place where he is allowed to do whatever he wants to do say whatever he wants to say, and we comply, we yield, and we make our hearts a worship room. Don't ever overlook the words that we read. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Christ meaning anointed one or Messiah. Lord is kurios in the Greek, and it means Lord and identifies him as God. So make our hearts in the midst of the response of the world. Put Christ there. And the call is to give him the rightful place that he deserves. For ultimately, he is the only one that we are to fear. 
We have to stand before him. We're not going to stand before government. We're going to stand before him. So ultimately, we should fear him because we're going to give an account for our lives. And so we should live pleasing to him and even grateful when suffering potentially may come. We give him the priority placed on the throne of our heart where we affirm that he is Lord, that he is holy, and he is righteous. And so we are called, no matter the circumstance, um, to just enjoy living in fellowship, and in intimate fellowship and worship with him. And I believe Christianity is a fellowship, it's a relationship with Christ at all times because he lives inside of us. And we are to live aware of that incredible reality. So we are to set him apart. We are to see him as Christ the Lord and we set him on the throne room of our heart. And then he tells us this, fourthly this morning. Next part of verse 15, look what it says. So in your hearts, but in your hearts, you honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason, for the hope that is in you. And as you answer them, you do it with gentleness and respect. Here's the fourth thing. We should be prepared to defend our belief. So this part of the text calls us to an important thing that we should be able to express to others who may attack the faith to say, this is why I believe what I believe. So he calls us to know what we believe and to know what we believe allows us to be prepared to give an answer. Now, listen to me. This doesn't mean, oh, I need to go to seminary? No. It means this. One of the most effective things that you and I can do to tell people who may attack our faith is to tell others how we have been transformed by Jesus himself. It's just a personal testimony. doesn't mean that we have to have all the answers. I'm stumped sometimes when people ask me questions. And i got to think it through and say, can we get back and talk about that? i, I got to think about that. So it's not one of those things, but it means this, that we know why we believe what we believe. And that we're able to make a defense. It's, this is a lawyer word. It means to, to be on this or to argue for why the gospel is the only way and the only truth and that Jesus is the only way and no one comes to the Father but by Him. So we are to always be prepared to know what we believe, to make a defense. And we are, remind us, we are under obligation to give a response, not to remain silent. We are to speak and just trust God in that moment. So since we have been given this unbelievable living hope because of our salvation, because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we are to be so full of hope that we are ready to talk about what has transformed us and what has changed our lives. And he uses the words here, to anyone. That means when the Jehovah's Witness come knocking, the Mormons come knocking, when your co-worker says something, that we are able to be able to talk about the things of our faith. And as we talk about them, Peter says this, don't yell and scream. Don't get mad. You do it with gentleness and you do it respectful. And by doing so, <clears throat> our proverb says this, a gentle answer turns away what? Wrath. Kind of puts people off a little bit. So listen, as they ridicule, we don't revile and get angry back. We just make a offense, talk about the truth, and we do so with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Hard one at times. Because sometimes you're like, I, I don't know how to answer that. And I just want to encourage us. If you can't answer a question, just tell somebody, Hey, you know what? I've never really thought through that. But that's a great question, and I'm going I'm to research that. And can we get back together? Can we go to breakfast sometime? Let's kind of talk about that. And I'd love to answer that question because I, I think what you pose is, is interesting. It's good. I think we just have a response like that, and then we want to get back with people. We are not, listen, 
Anybody mastered this yet? <laughs> I have not. I want to. I'm further along than I used to be. And I can answer and I can make a better defense now. And so it's for all of us. If we're not there yet, that's okay. Know why we believe. I would encourage us sometimes read theology things. Listen to theology things so that we know or read stuff. There's all kinds of stuff. We live in one of the best times of resources about what's called apologetics that's ever been. You can watch things, see things, read about things to help prepare you to answer some of the difficult questions. So here's what Peter says. Here's a fourth thing, and the fourth thing is this. Prepare your heart to defend the faith. All right, let's look at the fifth thing. And then he says, having a good conscience. Having a good good conscience so that, not if you are slandered, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when they say things, Those who revile your good behavior, they have an issue with your Christianity, they have an issue with the way you live, they have an issue with you not laughing at some of the things they laugh at. When they revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. I want to talk just for a moment about having a good conscience. This word having means to maintain. You know what a conscience is, right? It's Jiminy Cricket. Have you seen seen Pinocchio? That's not what a conscience is. A conscience is that thing inside of us that God's put inside of us. And believers, it should be really magnified because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us who speaks. And we should have a conscience that's being refined towards righteousness that tells us that's not good, that's not good, or that is good, that is good. Conscience tells us about both things. It affirms righteousness and it affirms unrighteousness. Peter, um, yeah, Paul said this, and this is in Acts 24. We'll get there eventually. This is what he says. He's making the defense before the governor. In, in Acts twenty four sixteen. he says, So I always take pains. Listen to the word that Paul uses. I take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul says, I fight. I take pains. I discipline. I have a principled life so that as I live my life in such a way that God is okay with the way I live, and man is okay in regard to they know that I, or he's saying this, he's saying, I am clear with God and I'm with man. And he examined his heart. He said, I want to make sure that I'm always right with those things. So how do you keep a good conscience? I think you do it with two things. I think we make ourselves accountable to Christ, and I think we walk in truth. And I think if we'll make ourselves accountable to Christ and we will walk in truth, then I think our conscience is developed in a more, more pure way. So he says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Here's what a good conscience does for the gospel. It confounds the enemies of Christ. Confounds them. They may say something to us, and we just don't argue back. We don't fight back. And they're like, you know, and that may bother them. They want to argue back more. It just puts them to shame. It confounds the enemies of Christ. And secondly, it confronts the enemies of Christ. Not only does it confound them, but it will confront them with the truth that they have to examine their, their lives. We are called to live the kind of lives that are attractive and desirable for others to want to know the truth of the gospel. Lastly, verse 17. The path of Christ is our path. So how do I deal with persecution? You can read about John Bunyan, who was put in prison for his faith and wrote a lot of things like Pilgrim's Progress and many other things. But ultimately, if you want to know how to deal with persecution, we look at Jesus. Because 1 Peter 2, 21 tells us this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so ultimately, you want, we, if we want to learn how do I deal with persecution? We look at Jesus. How did Jesus live? Well, he didn't use reviling for reviling. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So we follow Jesus. He becomes our path. So Peter would say, hey, consider Jesus. Take a good look at his life. For it's better to suffer for being good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now look at that First, we're about to close. We're closing now. Listen, don't laugh at that. We are. (laughs) 
For it is better to suffer for doing good. Listen, look what it says there. If that should be God's will. We have a wait a minute. You mean suffering at times in my life is God's will? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't like that. Well, God's aim in our lives always is never comfort. It's Christ-likeness. And we become like Jesus through the refining process of struggle and wrestling with things. And our nature inside longs for comfort and ease. God's nature in us longs for Christ-likeness. So it's better to suffer for doing good when that's God's will than for doing evil. So he, Jesus, is our example of unjust criticism. How do we deal with that? We keep quiet. We trust the sovereign God to make things right. I'll close with this. Acts 10, 34. Peter, from his life. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Acts 10, 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every... Yeah, I'll go and let you turn there if you want to turn there. Acts 10, verse 35 right now. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. 36, as the word, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, parentheses, he is Lord of all. 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about, listen to what it says about Jesus, look at 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he, what did Jesus do by being this anointed with the Holy Spirit? He went about doing good. The theme of what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Jesus went about doing good good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil because God was with him and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets, all the prophets, this is what Peter says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's the call of our lives, Peter says, do good for the gospel. The world may respond differently, but guess what? As you and I are refined in the refiner's fire of difficulty and suffering for faith, we become more like Jesus. We proclaim him. People are interested. It puts them to shame because of their perspective of that. That's the call, Peter says. These are the things you hang on to in the midst of that. This is what you hang on to. All right, let's pray.